Take a deep breath, take the higher road That's what they always say, as if they know the way They won't take it from me But don't ever doubt yourself, it's life ain't just a dream You make your own, so kick and scream The people will like with a never-ending force You never had the chance, so what you waiting for? The day has come, my friend, cause this is war As I look back on my time as an ICU nurse during the height of the pandemic, I can't help but be filled with sadness, anger, and fear. Sadness for the lives we lost, anger for the willful ignorance that contributed to their untimely and unnecessary death, and fear. Fear that we have only scratched the surface of what's to come. Hospitals across this country continue to utilize deadly protocols, push for unnecessary and unethical medical interventions in the absence of informed consent, and provide a level of care to patients that is so disgustingly low, you would think that we were living in a third world country. As a nurse, I understand well that death is a part of life, but what I witnessed during my time at the bedside was something far different. These patients weren't dying from a disease and they weren't dying from a virus. Patients were dying from the complete and total medical mismanagement of COVID-19, or perhaps for something far more sinister than that. You're listening to Nurses Out Loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. I'm your host, Nurse Kimberly Overton. Before we get started today, I do want to encourage our listeners, if you have questions or comments, or perhaps you want to share your own experiences with what you're seeing on the front lines of healthcare, you can submit those to any of the hosts by emailing them directly at nurses at americaoutloud.com. We would love to hear from you. We encourage all of you to engage in the battle and find your voice in this fight. But until you're able to do that, we will continue to be that voice for you. Joining me today is Doug Hines, author of the book, 98 Days, A True COVID-19 Story. He is one of the lucky few who lived to tell of the horrors he endured at the hands of a system that placed profits over patient care and that valued financial incentives over human life. He's accompanied today by his daughter, Ashley Gunderson, to share his incredible story of survival and determination. Doug, Ashley, welcome, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Kimberly, for having us. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to have you guys. So, you know, I, like I said, I worked at the bedside um, during the pandemic, and you know, the things that I witnessed uh, in my 26 years in healthcare, I had never seen such egregious acts being committed. So I really want to hear about, Doug, your story, what you went through, you know, from the a perspective of a patient. We know I've, I've heard my, you know, we've, people have heard my story and my perspective as a nurse, but we really want to share what people saw from that patient perspective. So thank you for being here, Doug. And if you want to just kind of give us a little bit of background on, um, you know, when when did you get COVID and how you ended up in the hospital? Oh, sure, sure. Um, maybe give a little background. Um, my daughter Ashley there is joining us today. Um, she had a 10-year um, 
wedding anniversary and uh well they got married in jamaica and uh, they wanted to do their 10-year anniversary also there so we went there in february of uh um 2020 and we had a great week had had fun and when we came home that's kind of when the covid era era started and um things were locked down uh, we flew into chicago and the airport was about empty couldn't figure out what was going on and uh, it was quite kind of scary so then uh as the summer went on the end of july or um yeah we, my wife and i decided to go on vacation up north with some friends and at that time i started not feeling well didn't know what was going on thought it was just a bug that i would get rid of it and um um well it turns out i didn't uh get any better i started coughing it hit my chest really hard and uh so the kids finally forced me to to go to the hospital so um august 6 2020 i went to the hospital and i was there for 98 days and uh, a lot of the treatments i got were experimental i was just looking at my chart actually this day three years ago i was getting remdesivir and I got 10 days of remdesivir while I was being treated for COVID and on a ventilator. So it was a pretty, pretty tough time for myself and and my kids and my wife. Uh, we suffered with all the protocols going on and things like that. Wow. And you, you said 10 days of remdesivir. The typical course from remdesivir um, at the time was five days. So they put you on that for, for 10 days. Yes, I got my chart here. I we ordered our records and and I'm, and I'm looking at my chart here. It started on August. Uh, looks like August ninth. Um, I went through the eighteenth or so, and it was ten days. Ten days from Desivir, and yeah, I know there's many people that uh, um, friends of mine that got from Desivir and they never made it. Yes, yeah, you you are one of the lucky few, I will say that, um, to have survived that. So that's especially considering the the number of doses that you got. Um, so so th that's a blessing. But I'm just curious when they gave you the remdesivir, when they presented that as a treatment option, did they present you other options, or did they? Uh, and what type of information did they give you about this medication? Did they explain to you that it was experimental? Um, no, at least not for me at that time. I was, I was getting pretty incoherent, and I, I really don't remember too much. I was kind of getting out of it at that time when they were explaining. All I remember is they had this experimental treatment, um, something about plasma and some other drug, and that's all I really remember at the time. <laughs> And so they, but they, they did have you sign a, a consent form or, you know, which is interesting to me. I don't know if you maybe had a family member that consented to it or if they would, you know, take your signature when you were clearly not in a frame of mind to give consent and, in, and inform consent for an intervention yeah. like that. And he, the day that he ended up going in, he was suffering, um, like coughing, um, to the point that he thought he wasn't going to be able to breathe again. Mm -hmm. Um, so he was, he was under a lot of duress at the time and my mom was with him, but yeah, they, I mean, they allowed him to sign and 
I, I, I believe we still have that document um, somewhere. If I, if I recall, um, I don't recall seeing like um, any details about the risks of having the drug. Um, Cause clearly there was, you know, kidney concerns with it for other uses. Um, so we were never, I, I, at that time, I was just starting to follow some stuff about, you know, other options, um, but they were so new too. So we didn't, we didn't have enough information at the time to make a judgment call on it. All we knew was at the time we were hoping the, you know, we sent him, we asked for him to be sent to uh, Marshfield Medical because, um, and by the way, we're from Wisconsin. Um, so um, we asked him to be sent there. My brother's a fire fireman paramedic there. And he had heard that, you know, Marshfield had been like, you know, kind of a, a helicopter place for COVID treatment. Um, they were following the Mayo protocols. So we were like, okay, this is our best hope. He's an hour away from his house, hour and 20 minutes away from his house. Um, you know, we're gonna put him in the best facility that we think we can find um, if, he, if this is COVID and if he is um, admitted. And so we just, we kind of just went with what we've done for all these years is trusted the medical, you know, process um, and gave them to the hands of what we were hoping was going to be great quality care. Um, and from then the roller coaster kind of started for us. Um, and I'm curious, you know, in, in the, you had sent, we corresponded a little bit, you know, uh, back and forth during email, um, and you had given me some information about a little bit of the experience, experience, um, uh, Doug, that you had, and talked about the intubation. Um, was this a, were you in distress when they intubated you? Was it an emergent intubation, or did they kind of convince you that this was the way to go? Boy, um... I don't really recall. I don't. I'm, I think I was pretty much out of it then. Mm -hmm. I, I really didn't understand what it was to begin with. Yeah. So, so we struggled, Kimberly. Um, that first week he was in the hospital. Um, he was under the isolation protocols. So clearly, he was, you know, put in a COVID unit. Um, you know, we found out later on it was kind of an area in the hospital that they kind of had, you know, COVID patients go to and curtained off. And I mean, he, I, I never thought to ask the question while he was sitting in a hospital bed, but he was walking, um, you know, when he went in and I know his lungs got hit hard, but he just started to fill with fluid and I don't know how much movement he got. Um, you know, he, you could see his face. We finally were able to get the doctors or the nurses to help us do like video chats with him since we couldn't be with him. Um, he has five children and a wife. So we all wanted to be partaking in, in his, you know, in this illness um, with him and be by his side, but we couldn't. Um, so we did video chats with him and we just saw him day after day get weaker and weaker and fill with fluid. His face was just, you know, filling out pretty, pretty rapidly. Um, and that Friday when he ended up getting intubated, they had been pronating him all week as well. Um, and I believe he was on Presidex as well um, to help with the, the discomfort. Yes. Um, and he was getting wiped out and he was asked that morning. Um, they called my brother and my mom um, because they were appointed as power of attorneys um, for dad. And this is still hard to talk about. <laughs> I know. He, uh, he just basically, we did a FaceTime chat. Um, it was, uh, you know, we, we all got on and we understood, you know, dad was struggling. 
He was struggling to breathe. He was struggling to, um, you know, power through with the illness. Um, they kept on saying he's still testing positive, even at that, even though at that point, like he came down with the illness around July 28th and we're sitting at, you know, August 14th when he got intubated and he's still testing positive. So they're still requiring isolation. Um, you know, which means also that the nurses going into his room are, you know, few and far between. And then, you know, because they have to put the PPE on and everything else and get geared up to go in there. So, you know, what kind of contact is he even getting from a, a personal, you know, ref state of mind? Um, and so anyway, so he he had said to us, you know, I'm getting weaker and I can't do this anymore because he couldn't, he couldn't go on his belly anymore. He was struggling to do that. Um, very uncomfortable, very hard to breathe. Um, and so when we got off that call, they called us about 30 minutes later, 45 minutes later and said that dad had been intubated, um, that he had agreed to it. And, you know, we, we understood where he was coming from. We knew like he had to do what was best for him at the time. Um, and that seemed to be the the route that it had to go. Um, and like I said, during this time of isolation, um, we really struggled getting any information from the staff. Um, we would call and, you know, try and ask how he was doing or see, you know, and, and they were busy. They said, you know, they're short staffed. They, they admitted to that. Um, but then they were also, you know, there's, no patients families in any of the hospital so you don't you don't have to tend to patients families you're only tending to patients and doing what you you know you have to do and we just we really started to feel like we were a nuisance calling um and so we had told them we said you know let's set up calls we know you have to go in the room we want to talk to our father um you know we've been told through the medical field because i work in the medical field um, you know, that these patients can still hear you. Yeah, they can't talk because they're intubated, but they can still hear you. So we, you know, requested, hey, is there a time that works when you put the PPE on? Can you please call our dad so we can talk to him? My my mom, you know, who hadn't been away for more than um, 10 days from dad um, ever in her life, um, you know, just wanted to be able to talk to her husband and tell him good night, say good morning, um, things like that, you know, just for him to hear her voice. And so, you know, we had a couple couple good nurses and and that's the thing. I don't want to make this a blanket overall statement for all because it wasn't. We had, you know, quite a few good ones, but um, we got some nurses to say, yeah, you know, let's let's do that. Well, then it was never consistency of nurses. So we'd have a couple really good nurses that are willing to do it and, and took the time to do it. And then there'd be nurses that said, well, you do realize he's intubated, right? Mm -hmm. And we were like, uh, yes, this is something we established, you know, with the staff earlier in the week, you know, we've been able to do it flawlessly. And then all of a sudden it would be a couple days of, you know, making us sound like, you know, we're the burden and we're placing a burden on, on, you know, what they're trying to do. And we're like, you do realize like we haven't seen our father for, you know, 14 days at this point. Um, and, you know, no ability to get into the hospital to, to hold his hand, to, you know, talk to him throughout the day, to recognize, you know, if, if something, if he looks like he's under distress, like being able to recognize that and call out for a nurse. Um, because like I said, you know, they're not, they're not sitting there looking at him constantly. Um, and it just really was, it was really a struggle for us. And, you know, finally we did, we were able to work with a supervisor and she even wrote up a little something about dad. And we added some of his, you know, what he likes to do, what he, you know, what kind of man he is, because he's a, he's a great father. He's a wonderful husband. He's 
Um, you know, he, he still is his insurance agent in his hometown, um, which he's been doing since he was what, 18 years old, dad, 21, <laughs> 21. Um, so he's just, you know, he's this great guy, this, this, you know, figure that he's doing something on this earth and he's, he's bringing, um, you know, a worth of value. This life is valuable. Um, and so we had a little write up of that stuff and we, we hoped like the nurses would look at it when they walked in so that they could communicate to him just like they would anybody else. You know, obviously he's not going to respond, but if he's all of a sudden coherent, maybe you can, you know, say, Hey Doug, you know, or his nickname's Papa Fresh. We call him Papa Fresh. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so he, uh, you know, so just little things like that to connect with the patient since they're in isolation and he wasn't in isolation for so long. Um, and it was, it was just, it was a struggle. Um, you know, that empathy that, you know, and I'm sure you can, you know, vouch for this, Kim, when, you know, you're, you're a nurse, obviously for a reason, most nurses have that empathy. And I just feel like that was lost when there was no face-to-face contact with some people. Um, and I think we found that a huge struggle. And then you sit there and wonder what kind of care he's getting because you're losing that empathy to us. What, you know, what kind of patients are they losing with dad? Exactly. Um, I, I think that during, during that time, you know, I saw more than ever, the the most egregious part of it was that the that was the isolation you know and i feel like and i've said this from the beginning if as we as nurses we should have stood up the moment that they told us that our patients could not have an advocate at their side we should have said no you know this is this is too far this is too much a patient should always have access to an advocate um, or a family member to be with them throughout their admission. And I've always welcomed that as a nurse. I've always welcomed an extra set of eyes and ears for, you know, for for my patients um, and somebody to advocate for them. Many times, like in, in the case with your dad here, he was not, uh, you know, really capable of providing information or being a good historian when he's so ill. So to have that is, I mean, it's invaluable to a nurse and, and to our assessment skills. But you know what what you were talking about about giving information about um, you know who who that pa- who is that patient in the bed because the system has really it's it's like they're on a path to dehumanize the patient in the bed and that I see it happening more and more and it's the saddest thing because we're not connecting the same way that we used to. So I always found it really valuable. To, I'd love to have pictures, you know, and um, uh, different information about what my patient liked and have those conversations with them to keep them, you know, just to keep them as calm and as, uh, you know, as happy as they could be. If you can be happy in a hospital or feel comforted in any kind of way, I mean, you know, that's what we're there for. You know, we're we're there to provide comfort, compassion, and care. And that seems to be a lost art during COVID. So that to me was the biggest, most egregious um, thing that that um, that occurred. But, but talking about the intubation, I noticed and that you, you made a, a remark about the PCR testing that he continues to test positive. And of course he did, because, you know, it would be possible to test positive for 90 days, but he's not symptomatic. I mean, sorry, not, um, you're not transmitting the virus at that point. And these medical professionals should have known better. So for them to continue to keep him in isolation for weeks at a time, there is absolutely no rationale for that. None. 
10 days, it, 10 days. Yeah. And it was interesting too, because we had finally, he, he was in the COVID unit and then we um, vouched because we, we had to ask early on, well, how long can he be intubated for? Cause we knew at some point he would need a tracheotomy and they had told us 14 days. Well, 14 days came and went and um, of the, of intubation. And so we were, we had brought the question up and no ENT and staff felt comfortable um, putting a trach at this point on, on dad. And so at 20 days of intubation, um, we were almost about to um, send him to UW-Madison. We had an accepting physician down there that said that they would do it. And we got a phone call from an ENT, brave ENT, who said, you know, we just need to make sure we have the appropriate medical equipment available and I will perform this, you know, tracheotomy. <laughs> and so he did. He had it. Um, so basically his illness, he was 37 days ill at that point. He was testing positive from within the hospital for 27 days now at this point. And they were still isolating him. And so we had asked, I'm like, who can we talk to? Because mom has not seen her husband now for, you know, 27 days, um, you know, hasn't placed any hand on him or anything. Um, what if he goes into this procedure and he dies? Like it's a procedure. There's always risk. Um, and we don't know what kind of state dad's in. Um, and so they did, you know, reluctantly, but they did allow my, my mom and my brother to go in and hold his hand before the procedure and walk him down for the procedure. Um, but again, like it just felt like it took so much. And, and I know not every patient, um, that was sick with COVID and isolated their families. I know they didn't know how to contact people like we did. I was like, no, we're, we're contacting somebody. Let's get a hold of management administration. Like this is just not right. Something didn't feel right about it. And um, shortly after his tracheotomy, he went to the ICU and the ICU is where we came across a nurse, a very experienced nurse. And I still love her to this day. Um, but she vowed she's, she would walk in the room and she was not wearing all her PPE because she's like, there's just no way he's still, you know, there's no way I can contract this virus anymore from him. And she helped um, along with a doctor, um, a community doctor that had 25 or more years experience, um, really helped um, to vouch to to do a, it was like they went into the, the um, trach and, um, and grabbed like some tissue and sent it off as a specimen test um, down at UW. But of course it was Labor Day weekend and um, they couldn't do those results until Tuesday morning. So that Tuesday morning is when um, the results came back negative and they considered him no longer contagious basically. And we were finally able to see, see dad after that. But um, it was just, you know, like you said, there was, I think there's some really good nurses that were very knowledgeable, but the protocol was isolation. He's still testing positive. So it was, it was really that struggle to that uneasiness of, you know, how are they making these rules? And then just knowing our dad and the situation he was in, like, how is this even humane? Like, exactly. I just couldn't understand it. We couldn't understand it. And it just didn't make sense. It doesn't. And, and I said that, you know, so many times that, you know, I, I've been in healthcare a long time, but everything from the beginning of COVID, all of the policies and procedures that would come down, none of it made any sense. And it would change day to day. <laughs> And none of it made sense. Now, the reason I asked you earlier about, you know, um, were you in distress when they intubated you or did they just, is this something that they recommended was because, and this is one of the most egregious things I'd ever seen and why I actually just felt, felt 
forced to leave bedside nursing because I could no longer partake in this, but they were intubating patients, not because they were in distress, but simply because it was, um, it was in an effort and an attempt to contain a virus because once the patient is on that ventilator, they are on a closed loop system and the virus is no longer disseminated into the air. And that was supposedly um, an attempt to protect staff. And I've noticed that you, you mentioned that, that they would not perform the tracheotomy because it was too dangerous yes. for the staff. Yes. And that made my stomach turn when I read that in your email. That made my stomach turn. We don't do medical interventions that carry risk to protect doctors and nurses. That's not what we do. That is not what we do. We have universal precautions, right? We use PPE. We use all of the things. We never know what we're exposed to. And that's since the beginning of time. We don't know what we're exposed to. But we go in and we take that risk. We take every reasonable precaution. But it is never reasonable to put a patient through a, a medical intervention unnecessarily that carries such incredible risk. 80% of the patients that were put on ventilators did not come off of them. And we knew that. Yep. Yeah. And we knew that at the time dad was intubated. And that's why I think it was so hard on us um, to watch him. You know, we never got to say bye. We never got to give him a hug. And we had like 14 days before he was intubated to be able to to do that or seven days before he was intubated to be able to do that. And we were isolated from him. Um, yeah. <laughs> It, it's, it just blows my mind. It continues to blow my mind to this day that there were physicians and nurses who they know better. They know better and that they, you know, the only thing that they would say was, well, this is protocol. This is what's coming from you know, the NIH and we don't have a choice. We always have a choice. We always have a choice. And, um, and I, at this point, I, I really feel like, you know, and like I said, there are good nurses. I think in the very beginning, there were so many of us that were just trying to do the best that we could to get our patients through this. But in, an environment that was, you know, changing daily, and they would push this fear onto mm -hmm. the nurses. And, you know, it, yeah. it was very difficult. It was difficult for all of us. And I think that there were so many. And the fact that they used these well-intentioned nurses to carry out whatever evil, sinister plan that they have got going on is, is again, just... Um, the most difficult part for me because th these nurses actually care. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it's yeah. been, it's been yeah. difficult. Well, and that's, I mean, something in my medical experience, I mean, I've seen so many nurses, you know, crying at, you know, after a patient's, you know, situation or, you know, giving up, you know, their life at home to help the hospital continue to run and help, help patients so that, you know, other staff, you know, don't feel the burden, um, you know, and, and they've been worn out. Um, you know, that was in part why a lot of them left is because they were starting to feel the, you know, the pressure of, you know, the amount of hours that they were being required to work and, you know, filling in because people were leaving. And, um, you know, it's just like anything, you kind of have this threshold and, when you're overworked and when you're tired and you're feeling the burden, you know, you're away from your home, your family is, um, you know, you're, you're, it's a job too, at the end of the day. And, um, you know, you, you reach that threshold and you start to lose some of that, you know, empathy, or you start to lose some of that as much as, you know, some of them maybe don't want to, or maybe some of them never did. Um, you know, but there are some that, you know, started to lose some of that, 
Um, you do start to become, uh, you become jaded. You be, and it's, I think, yeah. largely part uh, to a system that by design is is really set up in, in such a way that it does cause a divide between the nurse and the patient. It has the patients distrustful of the nurses, the nurses resentful of patients for, God forbid, seeking care. Um, you know, they are constantly tasking us with more to do and less resources. And so I think it's, it's a large part of it is just the system and the way that it's designed. And um, that's why I'm so passionate about the work that we do to try to restore that nurse patient relationship and provide you know, true patient care to people. That is something that is sorely, sorely lacking in these times. And it's yeah. something we've, we've got to do better on. Yeah, for sure. America Out Loud Talk Radio plays on the iHeartRadio network. You can also listen on our media player from any web browser anywhere in the world. We have the best in-class apps available on Apple, Android, or Alexa 24-7. Great talk radio. All of our shows go to podcast the following day. You can hear them on apps such as Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, iHeart Podcast, and many more. Be sure to subscribe and rate the show on Apple Podcasts for me. Don't forget to check out our online store at americaoutloud.shop where you can find all of the products that we represent on our network at a discounted rate, including ASEA Redox, which I can personally speak to seeing fantastic results with, including better sleep, increased energy, improved mood, and a decrease in my joint pain. Use promo code OUTLOUD to save 15% off your purchase. I'll catch you on the other side of this break. Stay with us. It's time and this is Millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of the toxic spike protein. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed their spike support formula to counteract harmful spike protein from COVID-19 and vaccines so you can feel your best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Cofix RX Nasal Solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flu, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. While the cancel culture destroys our history, bringing crime and terror to city streets, AmericaOutloud.news will enhance its own message of love and honor for the American traditions and constitutional values that have always been the backbone of what America means. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity.
Welcome back to Nurses Out Loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. I'm your host, Nurse Kimberly Overton. Wherever you're listening from today and whatever you're doing, I thank you for giving me the gift of your time. Be sure to make americaoutloud.news your daily stop for all of the latest news and happenings. We all must do our part and share the stories, the articles, the podcasts, and videos so we can help secure America's future. Let's jump right back in. If you're just joining us, I've been talking with author of 98 Days, A True COVID-19 Story, Doug Hines, and his daughter, Ashley Gunderson. Doug, Ashley, thanks again for being here with me today. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. So I wanted to touch a little bit, uh, Doug, on your time. When when you were sedated um, in the hospital, you were on the ventilator, you were sedated, um, which is, is is not unusual. They will usually put you on some uh, form of sedation to help relax you um, uh, so that you're able to tolerate the vent. So that isn't unusual, but, you know, I always see, you know, a lot of times I'll see patients going into, um, I'm sorry, nurses going into a patient's room that's intubated and, and and not narrating care, not letting them know that there's a nurse in the room or just, you know, I can't imagine. I, patients are still peripherally aware. Um, and it's so important as nurses that we are still going in, we're still introducing ourselves, whether or not that patient appears to be awake or not, we still need to introduce ourselves and, and let them know exactly step-by-step step what we're doing. Was that something that was happening um, and did you feel comforted and reassured by nursing staff? What What were you aware of when you were on that ventilator? Oh boy, um, I don't really recall too much. Um, when I went, did go in the hospital, I remember walking down the hallway after I got tested positive and going to my room. And after that, I really don't know too much. I apparently I talked on Skype with my kids and my wife. And after I did wake up from the coma and they told me I did, I said, I don't know Skype. I don't know how to do Skype. So I didn't even remember talking to them, you know, during that time. So it was a very difficult. I wanted to mention too also that, you know, we're talking with Ashley, my daughter here, but also um, Angela, um, my daughter Angela, she was a um, former emergency room paramedic. Amanda was a former phlebotomist. And also my daughter, Sean, was a naturopathic doctor. And of course, my son, Tyler, is a um, firefighter. And Ashley works in uh, cardiology. And of course, my wife worked in uh, housekeeping in, in the hospital. So the, all, their, all their knowledge of working in healthcare to this day, I know it totally saved my life or I'd have been just a statistic out there because they understood what was going on and all of them had a part in and saving my life so I could write this book today, 98 Days. But uh, yeah, as far as being in a coma and stuff, I really don't remember too much. Um, all I, can, I remember waking up and I started having these terrible dreams. Um, the first one, I dreamt my wife. Um, I woke up in the room and my wife had this large knife on my throat and she was gnawing on my throat and Ashley and Tyler were in the room and I couldn't figure out what was going on. And when I, I did wake up then for real, and I had this bandage on my throat, which was from the trach and everything, and I didn't know at the time what it was for. So I thought, oh, of course it was true. You know, they were, that's why I have the bandage on my throat. So of course I couldn't talk or nothing. I was in distress, couldn't say nothing to anybody and couldn't figure out what was going on. 
and then I went back to sleep. I know I had some more dreams about a neighbor and and um, um, being locked in a room with this webbing and and it was kind of a long long dream. It's all explained in my book. I have all the dreams in my book because they were they were so uh, all out of this world, <laughs> might say. And um, it was really a difficult time. Dad, do you want to talk about the the time? Because, like he said, he was tricked, so he couldn't talk, he couldn't verbalize, he was he couldn't lift his arms from his bed, the bed, because he was so he was laying flat for so long that his body was no longer mobile. Right. Um, so he couldn't even write or anything. So communication was not a thing. So when Dad. Um, started to finally come to um, was still under sedation, but obviously just not able to communicate. But he was still starting to kind of be aware of what was going on, um, more so. But um, talk about the lady that um, the high heels lady or whatever with the oh oh yeah, I did have uh, I did recall a couple times in my room. Um, there was a lady in high heels and writing on a clipboard and um she came in my room for something and the kids know they say there's never anybody in high heels i said well darn well i saw this lady in high heels and then uh later the next i don't know if it was the next night or whatever she was in my room again and um and she all she had was a blanket and no shoes on or her hair was down and she didn't have glasses on. So I figured she was probably sleeping, but, and I don't know what she, she had to check something or what. Uh, that was one occasion. Um, another voice at uh, about four in the morning, I just would happen to wake up and there was a young gentleman walked into my room. And when he saw my eyes either move or, or something, he walked backwards slowly out of my room. And so I know he wasn't supposed to be there for a reason, but of course at that time I couldn't say nothing to anybody or nobody would believe me anyway. But uh, um, so that couple of things that happened when I was in uh, in ICU. And then then I, after that, I didn't trust anybody. I was very scared and I wanted to get the hell out of there. But of course I found out I couldn't walk. And so then that became a, you know even worse time. But thank God for my kids to break through the barriers. Yes. Yeah. And thank God, because like I said, if you didn't have that level of advocacy, so many, we lost so many patients due to these, these protocols. Um, again, not, not due to COVID, but due to the complete medical mismanagement of COVID-19. So thank God for the um, incredible family that you had that was able to advocate on your behalf. Um, you know things could have been very very different in this situation so i'm i'm so glad to see that you're doing so well um what was it that made you decide you know I, i'm going to turn this experience into a book that you wanted to really share this story and your experience with the world well my daughter uh actually there she kind of um convinced me i talked about it for a while i said you know listen a lot of the things a lot of things happened with my kids while i was in the coma they got together just about every day here at the house and uh, visited they took phone calls and there were just odd things and they're all explained in the book 
uh, weird things that happened that you you, know, you just can't say, you know, how it happened. And um, all these things happened. And so we kept talking about the book. And one day I just, I just said, hey, it's time, you know, time to put this on paper. So I sat down on my iPad and I just went back from the beginning the best I could from memory. You know, because I'm not one for keeping much notes. Well, I couldn't at the time, obviously. But uh, um, I kept a lot of notes. The kids kept notes. So thank God for them. And um, what was going on. And I just started going day by day what I can remember, um, what I went through. And, and then they started adding in, you know, their things. And I couldn't believe you know, it, was, it was it was very emotional to see the things that they went through yeah. and, and to fight for me. Um, excuse me, but uh, um, it's been three years, and it's still still hard to think back of what. No, I I completely understand. I I I have difficult time even talking to this day, even talking about it. What I witnessed in the hospital and what I saw uh, still is very emotional for me as well. So I completely understand. But yeah, then uh, uh, when I left Marshfield, at the doctor there, he said uh, you were a miracle, and at the time. Um, I didn't didn't think nothing of it, and but afterwards, now it's like, yeah, he was right. It was a miracle because uh, we've been told by a couple nurses in Marshfield that used to work there. I'm the only I'm the only one that's lived out of the critical care ICU COVID unit, and there. So then, that makes the hair stand up on back of my neck to this day. I can count two. I can only count two. And I worked through most of that pandemic and I can count two patients that that were in a situation like you. And I count two that survived and, um, wow. and barely. So to say you're a miracle is an understatement. Yeah. So that's kind of part of the book since I did that too. I also, uh, maybe I can share this with you in a minute. I get it's on the back of my book. I decided to write a poem called Life's a Miracle. Wow. Yeah. So I can share that to you if you don't mind. I would love it. Yes, please. Okay, it's called Life is a Miracle. Uh, life is a miracle like the blue in the sky. Through the hands of Jesus, you get to ask him why. As we fly through the clouds that never seem to end, turning dreams to memories, the time we get to spend. Jamaica is our destiny, how oh, beautiful it will be. Warming sand between our toes, time spent with family. Time has come, fun is done, back to the life we've known. As our plane comes to a halt, we see a world unknown. As time goes by, life stands still with horror in our eyes. Masking becomes a way of life, disrupting all our lives. I thought I was a man of steel, no sickness could control. I fought the fight that no one should. My body takes a toll. There you are lying all alone, just a nurse by your side. Is this just it? My journey's done. Broken hearted, only cried. There I lie in a state of mask, a heartbeat away from light. Is there a chance my last breath ends this dreadful night? Then there's a calm, a peaceful time. Life is slipping away. A pair of hands, a grip so tight. Please fight another day. Here comes the power. Inner strength just can't explain. My body says you're not done yet. My soul is full of pain. My family's near. 
I just can't hear shouts. Are you alive? As I shed a tear, the fight is clear. I'm going to survive. My eyes come open. My life is broken. My future all a blur. They're at my side, my wife, my life. My family creates a stir. A miracle happened to my surprise. Doctors can't say why. I've been blessed to live this ride. It's time to say goodbye. That is absolutely beautiful. Thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, yeah, you're welcome. It's, it was but it was all the thoughts put together through the whole process, and and um, I believe it is a miracle. Thanks to my my wife and my kids. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I can't impart to you enough how miraculous uh, your recovery again. How miraculous that was. We did not see that happening. And that was the, the really difficult part is that, you know, despite all of our best efforts, all of our patients just kept declining. We could, they just weren't getting any better, no matter what we would do. And, you know, I didn't necessarily think anything nefarious at first was going on. I didn't, I, you know, I just thought um, at worst, you know, this medication, the remdesivir, wasn't working and the reason why it doesn't work is because it's an antiviral and you know by the time patients like yourself get to the hospital they're typically past their replication phase and and several days into their symptomatic phase so giving an antiviral at that point isn't going to be effective in treating covid or any other virus it doesn't work it relies on a form of viral replication and that wasn't occurring so to me, I just couldn't understand why we would continue to use a medication and a protocol that was clearly doing more harm than good. And then I just had that bigger question, you know, why was the finance, the government financially incentivizing its use? Mm -hmm. You know, at first I just thought, well, this is dumb. <laughs> you know, I just didn't understand. But then I started to see more and more that it was something far more sinister than just pure ignorance. Um, yeah, and actually talking about that, um, you know, we had heard at that time, we started to hear things about, um, you know, the financial gain the hospitals were getting. And I do remember sitting there um, when dad was, we were, my mom, my brother and I were together one night um, shortly after his tracheotomy and we got a call from the physician and, or we request, we demanded a, a call from the physician after dad went through a decline one night Um and the physician said, well, you know, I'm really thinking it's time for hospice. And we were like, uh, wait a minute. Like we were just told his lungs were good from the ENT. Um, you know, there was all these things that just didn't add up to hospice. And we were really confused. So we demanded a face-to-face -face conversation with a physician. And that's when we met. Um, it wasn't the same physician. It was a different physician that started the new week um, out and this Dr. Gilbert, he was a community physician and he listened to us. And that's when my mom had stated as well, um, you know, basically, you know, you're trying to kill my husband for money. Um, and after, you know, a very difficult conversation with him, he did um, do a brain CT to prove that dad's brain was functioning. Cause really that was the only thing we didn't know if it was functioning, like, you know, like, and you can talk for your hospice, um, you know, yeah. knowledge, but from what I knew, I was like, isn't hospice, if somebody is like, like, there's no turning around, like something is already dead, like whether it's, you know, they're 
they're showing signs of complete, you know, blood work that's so out of whack that, you know, they're, they're showing that, you know, things can't function appropriately or, you know, they're brain dead or their lungs are, you know, like for us, his lungs were good. Like that was our huge concern is, you know, what happened to his lungs? And we were told the lungs looked good. Um, his heart was working fine. Um, his kidneys were showing signs of weakness, but, you know, that was the only thing that we, you know, were really worried about. Um, and so, you know, he was able to get a brain CT and, and prove his brain was, you know, there was no massive hemorrhage or, you know, dead tissue in there um, from any stroke or anything. Um, and so, you know, with with that and then, um, you know, it just it just I guess it it just burned me again. Like, you know, like you had said too, like where's the center for excellence um, on COVID? There still isn't one. Like, you know, what you guys are doing, what Peter McCullough is doing, what, you know, um, Dr. Pierre Corey is doing, like, like I'm, I've followed a lot of what they're doing and they're doing a lot of pretreatment before hospital, you even get to a hospital. Um, So it's like, it's like, there's so much that has come from it, but you don't hear about that in the mainstream media. Like, you know, I, I had to find that stuff um, and, yeah, and really seek it out. The vaccines, they're still pushing the vaccines as uh, as a way to prevent COVID, even though we know it doesn't prevent transmission. We, we've seen the short-term data has really been alarming that it actually is doing more harm than good. Again, and yet they're still pushing it. They're pushing it on vulnerable populations like children and pregnant women versus talking about let's keep people healthy let's keep them well my goal with the remnant is to keep people healthy well and away from a corrupt sick care system let's cut it before it even gets to that point where they're needing to be hospitalized so many people we could have we could have kept out of the situation if they had not demonized a safe and effective therapeutic medication that had been safely used for decades right yeah it was it was a it was difficult to watch um like i said that level of care and compassion pretty much um, be flushed down the toilet and anybody that came in the hospital with a covid diagnosis automatically had a bounty put on their head mm-hmm. and that's why i no longer encourage people to go to the hospital i never thought that i would get to a point as a nurse that i would say please don't go to the hospital because <laughs> i know you will very likely die well, and that's, I, I know now, like, I just need to be prepared. I need to know who to call. I need to, you know, be able to be there and, and advocate for any loved one that might go. Um, you know, even, even if it is for something minor, I, you know, I feel like it's my, I don't know what's in my soul. I don't know if it's, you know, if it's what God created in me, I don't know what it is, but I feel like I need to be there for them because I, you know, I witnessed what dad went through and how we had to advocate for him. And I don't want another family member or loved one to go through what dad went through, regardless of what they go in the hospital for. Um, I just want to make sure they know they have a voice. Absolutely. And that, and that's so important. And I think that there's, there's a lot of silver linings, believe it or not, that have come from COVID. And I think that so many uh, nurses some doctors and, and just many family members and others just realizing that uh, they, they need to learn how to advocate for themselves and for their loved ones. And without that, it's, it's a difficult, it's a difficult road moving forward. If we don't have that, that person in place to advocate for us, like you said, even just something simple, like going to a follow-up appointment with your doctor, because a lot of times they're just giving you medications and they're not looking to the root cause of what's actually causing these problems and looking for a way to eliminate the source. 
They're just, you know, giving you a prescription to manage whatever symptoms and likely that prescription is going to cause 10 more uh, side effects that'll be unfortunate and uh, just lead to more chronic illness and disease. And that's something that all of us, you know, need to come together and try to combat. Definitely. I definitely agree with you on that. Um, We can't. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no. And I think just to touch on too, like I I know dad, um, you know, he's, he's recovered, uh, to a point, um, his kidneys are damaged. He's in stage five renal failure. Um, we were able to, um, just like you had mentioned, you know, restoring health before you even get into the hospital, he thought he was healthy. So, um, you know, you never really understood why we, he went into the hospital cause he's never been a sick person before. Um, and we were able to find, uh, it's called the wellness way, um, locally, and um, he worked with them right off the bat and were able to, um, you know, e- utilize a nutritious diet um, and change, you know, a little bit of his his ways. And, um, you know, one of the biggest thing that's come from it since is he was having gallbladder attacks and they wouldn't take his gallbladder out in the hospital because he was so sick with his kidneys. Well, that's kind of a blessing that they didn't because you need your gallbladder. And since he changed his diet and um, made some adjustments, he hasn't had a gallbladder attack again. So, and, you know, and we're three years out from that. So it's, um, it's an interesting um, journey. um, Once you start actually looking at your health and what health really is to prevent you know, illness or help, help yourself to give yourself a shot. If you do get, you know, ill with something. Um, exactly. Exactly. But, but yeah, so stage five renal disease, um, renal, um, disease as well as his vocal cord injury. And then, um, from what we think is, you know, the, the long-term intubation that he was potentially on and then the neuropathy, neuropathy in his feet. Um, he did get the, the purple black toes, um, while he was in the hospital. Um, and his feet really haven't, you know, fully recovered from that. So he has a lot of pain and burning in his feet. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, it's, it's been heartbreaking to see so many people still suffering to this day, but that that's one of the most depressing parts of, uh, for me working in the ICU and even pre COVID was that, you know, 90, probably I would say 90 to 95% of everything that we saw walk through those doors of the ICU, completely preventable with lifestyle modifications. And we just don't do enough to focus on uh, health and preventative health. And that's okay. something that I think that, you know, as a society, we really need to focus more on including the nurses because we're, we're pretty unhealthy too, most of us, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> um, but, you know, for, for many reasons, but um, it's something that we really need to to bring to the forefront and prioritize. Uh, and uh, like you said, we, we need to start looking at what's coming next. Do we, do we think that this is the last thing that we're going to see coming down the pike at us? I don't think it is. And the, the real challenge is going to be finding ways that we can get ourselves in the best, you know, our immune systems in the best optimal condition. That's our best defense against whatever they have coming down. Yeah, we couldn't perfect it the first time around. So what's to say they're going to perfect it the second time? Exactly, exactly. And, to you know, at this point, it doesn't seem as if there's any um, end in sight to, you know, what the different angles that they're coming at us from, you know, whether it be the food that we eat, the water we drink, the air that we breathe, they come at us from every angle. And again, our best defense is going to be keeping ourselves as healthy 
uh, as as we possibly can, and yeah. it's not not through a COVID vaccine that doesn't yeah. protect anybody else either. Well, and, sure everybody hears me there. <laughs> and speaking of that, he, uh, you know, Dad in January called because he isn't sure where his, you know, stage five renal disease is going to go, and started to try and consider the kidney transplant process. And UW Madison still to this day denies him the opportunity because he doesn't have the COVID nineteen vaccine. And then um, Freighter d- denied them init- him initially in January, but have since, um, um, you know, has allowed him to potentially pursue that opportunity. And this is just so, it's so disturbing to me to continue to hear these types of stories. I've heard this over and over again, uh, people being denied care, people being denied life-saving organ transplants because uh, they're not vaccinated with an experimental drug that we know does not prevent transmission. Um, so it's so, and that's why, again, we, we continue to advocate for, for patients all across the country and around the world who are looking for uh, advocates in this space, because if you, you truly need one, you truly need one, and you need one that uh, understands the ins and outs of this system. Um, Doug and Ashley, thank you so much for being with me today. Um, and, and helping to share the stories. Please tell me really quickly, we have just a, about a minute left here. If you could tell me uh, how people can get you and find your book. Oh, sure. Um, we do have a website. It's 98-days.com. Uh, and um, you can get the book on Amazon. Um, just to search 98 days. Otherwise, there's a link on, on the website. Um, there are two, and I have an email there. If people have questions, um, they can ask me anything, and uh, that's basically the, how you can get a hold of it. All right, perfect. I'll make sure that we include all of those links uh, to get the book, enter your website in the show notes that will accompany these, this episode once it goes to podcast. And again, thank you both so much for being here and for sharing your story, and we wish you we wish you well. We wish you all the best. Thank you, Kimberly. Keep doing all the things that you're doing. We sure will, Doug. Thank you so much. And that's all the time that we have for today, friends. But remember, we are here on the air five days a week, Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern with a different nurse host daily. You can also catch the Encore at 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Please be sure to tune in and listen to myself and my amazing sister nurses. As we walk you through all of these hot topics, we will empower you with information and education. We will advocate and we will stand in the gap for you because we are nurses and this is what we do. I'm your host, Nurse Kimberly Overton, and you can find me here every Wednesday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern. Until next time, be be safe, be well, and God bless. Tune in tomorrow at 10 a.m. Eastern as I hand off the baton to Nurse Michelle. We are in a war for truth. We are putting out a bounty on the real misinformation and exposing the purveyors of propaganda. No topic is off limits as we shine our lights and expose the darkness. It's time